The last few days I've been thinking and reviewing and reflecting as most people do this time of year. And you know, time is a weird thing. It is so elusive, isn't it? And it seems like time is relative to your age. Ever notice when you're a kid that a week is an eternity? And when you get older, a year is no big deal. We say we'll do that next year. You tell your five-year-old that and he'll have a fit. And Nathan, for him to wait ten minutes, he just can't, can't do it. It's so difficult for him. Leslie Weatherhead wrote a book called Time for God, and he looked at the human life compressed into one day, beginning at 7 o'clock and ending at 11 o'clock. And he said, if your age is 15 years old, then the time is 10.25 in the morning. If you're 20 years old, the time is 11.34. If you're 25 years old, it's 12.42. If you're 30-something, the time is 1.51 p.m. If you're 35, it's 3 o'clock. If you're 40, it's 4.08 p.m. If you're 45, the time is 5.16. If you're 50 years old... It's 6.30. If you're 55, it's 7.30. If you're 60 years old, it's 8.42. If if you're 65 years old, the time is 9.51 p.m. And if you're 70, it's 11 o'clock. Not only is this the end of a year, it's the end of a decade, which makes it a little more significant, because I think all of us do, or at least should, have decadal review where we look back over 10 years and see where we've come. And I took a walk last night and I just started thinking. It was the 80s that God really started stirring up my heart to leave Huntington Beach and to go elsewhere. In fact, it was in 1980. 1981, that's when I married my wife, Lenya. Three days later, moved to New Mexico. It's in 1986 that we had Nathan. And all of these years, we've been here over eight years now in this state, they have been the best ten years of our lives. Gotten to know many of you. And so as I look back over ten years, the blessings God has given me are incredible. David said, forget not all of his benefits. There's so many of them. And then the next question, obviously, at a time like this is, well, what does the future hold? What's going to happen tomorrow? Now, people are really interested in the future, especially in our country. Americans spend something like $22 million a year on astrology to find out their future. We want to know what's going to happen. In fact, lately on Johnny Carson's show and some of the other late-night talk shows, they have mediums on. And they predict different people's futures. What's going to happen in the next year, in the next several years. And it seems that people will go to any extreme and pay any price to find out what the future holds. I heard of a man who went to a uh, fortune teller and paid his $25 and was handed a notice. For your $25, you've been granted two questions to have answered. The guy turned to her and said, Isn't that a rip-off? I mean... Only two questions being answered for 25 bucks? 
She said, yes, sir, it is a ripoff. Now, what's your next question? <laughs> we are concerned about the future because we're going to spend the rest of our lives there. And God knew that, and He knew that concern. And so in chapter 29, speaking to the children of Israel, He gave this promise in verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Or as one translation says, to give you a hopeful future. That's what God has granted for you. Knowing that you're concerned about what's going to happen to you, God has made a promise that you will have a hopeful future if He is in control of your life. Corey ten Boom once said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And the best thing about the future, although it's unknown, is that we know the Lord. Or as someone else once put it, we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And that's God's promise to the children of Israel. Looking into the 90s and using Jeremiah 29, it's first important to know the place that we're at. And I want to begin in verse 1. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the remainder of the elders who were carried away captive, to the priests, the prophets, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. This happened after Jeconiah the king, the queen mother, the eunuchs, the princes of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elassah, the son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now the place that they were at was Babylon. And here's a little bit of the background. While these people were still in their native land, Jerusalem, there was a superpower looming over the horizon called Babylon. And Babylon was flexing its muscles, threatening to become the world power and take over everybody. It was especially a threat to Israel because God's own people had fallen into idolatry. They'd backslidden. And Jeremiah the prophet was predicting their doom and predicting that they, because of their idolatry, would be taken captive to another land. That threat turned into a reality in the year 597 B.C. When the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, sieged the city, took all the bigwigs, the priests, the prophets, the craftsmen, the soldiers, and about 10,000 other people and took them into a new place, place of Babylon. And so chapter 29 is written not to people in Jerusalem, but people who will be living for the next 70 years in a whole different place, a place of Babylon. It wasn't their home but they would spend probably a lifetime. And if they were just born during this time, since the average lifespan is 71 years, they're going to live the rest of their life in a foreign land. I bring this to your attention, that they know the place where they're at, 
Because that is something we need to do as we face the 90s, is to realize where we are, because this is a beautiful description of the Christian in the world. Jesus said, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And just as the children of Israel were now in Babylon, you and I, in a sense, are in our own Babylon. Because the children of Israel were in a place that was the land of their enemies. They were surrounded with people who were not compatible with them. They were hostile against them. They didn't believe in their God. They didn't pray to their God. They didn't worship at the temple. They could care less about their God. And the children of Israel were planted in that culture for 70 years. A hostile place. Just like you and I are in our own Babylon, very hostile to the things of God, who by and large do not acknowledge or really care about the fact that you love God, and you are sent into the world as sheep in the midst of wolves. And we've all experienced that, haven't we? Example. You get a new job. You're on the job. You assimilate into the job. You get along with people at first. And they really like you. Until some of them discover that you're a Christian. And some of them don't take kindly to that. In fact, some of them are antagonistic toward you because they find out that you're not just mildly religious, but you love Jesus. And you find yourself in a Babylon situation. You know, it's interesting. In this world, you could be an alcoholic, could be an adulterer, could be a slob. You could even be mildly religious, and that's okay. But you make up a stand for Jesus Christ and say, I really love the Lord. And you're going to have problems. You're going to find that those people aren't sympathetic toward you. Oh, they might pat you on the back and say, that's fine for you. Just button your lip and don't tell us about it. But you see that there's a hostility. You're in Babylon, man. And you know why there's a hostility? Because there's a kingdom clash. You now belong to a different kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. And the people around you recognize that perhaps more fully than you do at times. And the kingdom that you're in rubs up against the kingdom that they're in. And there's a collision. And folks, if there was a collision of those kingdoms in the 80s, you're facing the 90s, that collision will be more pronounced in the years to come. Because in the 80s, people made a big issue in this country to separate church and state. Because, oh, we want that really separated, especially the world. But in the 90s, people are trying desperately to rule God completely out of this society. To throw him totally out of every public institution. There will be a concerted effort to throw God out completely. That is the future that you face and that is the future that your children face in the 90s. And you know what? Jesus insisted that that's the way it be. That was all his plan. You say, I don't understand. Well, listen to the words of Jesus in John 17. As he's praying to the Father, Jesus says, I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just as I am not of the world. Now listen. He says, I don't pray that you should take them out of the world. We pray that. God, give me a Christian job. 
Put me around people who love you all the time. I'm sick of the hostility that I get from these Babylonians. Uh, Father, don't take them out of the world, but I pray that you just keep them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You know, it's part of God's plan that you be in Babylon, a hostile environment that doesn't know the Lord. It is God's plan and it was his intention that you and I work alongside of filthy mouths and party animals. You say, why would that ever be part of God's plan? Does God want to drag me down? No, God does it to lift them up. Because salt and light need to be poured out into this wicked world to lift up the gospel, to show them the way, to pour salt in a putrefying society so that they will say, we need what you have. That's God's whole intention, not to drag you down. So realize where you are. You're in Babylon, just like the children of Israel are. There's something else as we go on. They were sustained by something. It says in verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. And in verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. In other words, this is a letter from heaven. God is writing a letter through his secretary, so to speak, Jeremiah. It's as if God said, Jeremiah, take a letter. I want this to be sent to all of my people who are in Babylon for that lifetime of 70 years. And this is one of a few letters that was sent to this group of people. It was a written word of God. They had a letter that would keep them through thick and thin. It would sustain them through the tough times of being in captivity. In fact, it's chock full of promises. In verse 12, God says, You will call upon me, go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and, f- and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. This letter was one of the things that sustained God's people while they were in Babylon. Because, you see, they never planned to go into captivity. Oh, they were warned about it. Captivity was predicted. Jeremiah said, if you don't obey, you're going to be taken captive. But still, this was a shock for most of the people that were there. It really happened. For the next 70 years, we're going to be in Babylon. Don't you find that life is like that? Someone once said that life is the continual process of getting used to things that you never expected. Do you ever plan a tragedy? You don't need to. It just happens. But the question is, how do you handle times like that? How do you weather the storms of being in Babylon? You weather the storms the way these guys weathered the storms. They had the written word of God that sustained them while they had their lifetime upon this earth. This was chock full of promises, challenges, admonitions. And God sent this letter to them for the very purpose of keeping them going during this time. That's how you handle it. You know who comes to my mind? Job. Now, when you think of Job, what do you think about? Pain. Suffering. Loss. Heartache. 
And in the very midst of his worst trial on this earth, when his body was covered with boils and his back had running sores, he said one of the most incredible statements. He said, when I have been tested, I will come forth as gold in the end. And right after that, he said, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. When life was smoldering and in ruins for Job, he leaned upon the Word of God. If you want to be sustained throughout the 1990s, you need something to hold you together. And what needs to hold you together is the Word of God. You need to be sustained by the written Word of God, even as the children of Israel were. You need the promises in it, the challenges in it, and the rebukes in it. Because the Word of God has the power to do incredible things in your life. And some of you know that, but you know what? I'll bet you there's some of you today who really don't know the power of the Word of God because you've never really seen it work. You've never applied it in your life. But it's got the power to change you. Hebrews tells us the Word of God is alive, powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. It can cut between what is soulish and what is spiritual. God takes His Word and does heart surgery. He cuts out things that aren't good. He heals things. Brings them together. The Word of God will change you. The Word of God will give you direction. David said, Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. The Word of God will keep you from sin. For again, David said, Your Word I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. And as you and I face the 90s, if you want to be kept from sin, then you keep yourself and you keep your nose in the Word of God. And you be sustained by the written Word of God. In fact, there's an old proverb that says, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. Stay close to the Word of God. Also, the Word of God will cleanse you. For Jesus said, now you are clean through the Word that I have spoken unto you. The Word of God will give you peace. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace, Jesus said. All the promises for you concerning the Word of God. Real candidly, if you don't have a Bible, buy one. Or we'll give you one free. If you can't afford it, I'd love to just give you one. Buy a Bible, get a Bible, and this year, read your Bible. Don't stick it on the coffee table for an adornment. Don't press flowers with it. Feast your soul upon it. My prayer is that this year you would feed upon the Scripture so consistently that you'd even get a little spiritual indigestion. You'd overeat the Scripture. You might even burp up a few Scriptures. Who knows? (laughs) That you'd feast upon it. That you'd be sustained by the Word of God. That's what you need. It's been said that if a man's Bible is coming apart, it's a good indication that he's not. Feed upon it. You know, there are Christians that uh, look at this book as if it's some mysterious rule book that's like castor oil that you just got to take every morning before breakfast. You know, I don't want to. It's hard. I just, I'll do it. And, you know, you take an, oh, And then there are people like Job He said, I've treasured the words of your mouth more than my necessary food. People like Sir Walter Scott, the famous British poet, 
novelist, and committed Christian. On his deathbed, Sir Walter Scott said to his secretary, Bring me the book. Walter Scott had a library of thousands of volumes, and the secretary said, Which book? And he looked and he said, The book. The Bible. The only book for a dying man. And I would add to his comment, the only book for a living man or woman. The book, feast upon the word of God. You want to face the 90s with confidence? Realize you're in a hostile world that doesn't love God. And you face darker times than the 80s. It's predicted in the scripture. But be sustained by the word of God or you won't make it. As we go on, God tells his people in captivity the way to live until he returns. For he promises around verse uh, 10 that he would visit them again and bring them back to Jerusalem. In other words, you'll be here 70 years, but there's going to come a day after 70 years that I'm going to return in a sense. I'm going to come back and take you from Babylon to the place you belong, Jerusalem. Which is, again, is a perfect analogy for us. What do we do until Jesus comes? Now, we know he's coming. And I believe he's coming soon. But, as you know, soon can be very relative. For one day is a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is one day. So you might say, Lord, please come back. He said, sure, be be there in a couple days. (laughs) Now, what do you do for comfort in a situation like that? What do you do to sustain yourself? You have the word of God. How do you live until he comes? Well, it says in verse 5, to the children of Israel, God says, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens. Eat their fruit. Take wives. Beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters so that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace you will have peace. How do we live till he comes? Well, be responsible where you are. That's the first point. That's what he told them. You're in Babylon. Make the best of it. Don't get too over-involved that you become like it, but be responsible where you are. Buy a house. Take care of your family. Get a job. Don't just sit around and wait for me to come back. Do something. Be responsible. Then he says, have kids. I was thinking about that. I was thinking, it's tough to raise kids in this culture. And if you think ahead of the 90s to the year 2000, and you picture your children living in this society, that's pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, how many parents have you talked to that said, oh, I don't know if we want any more. I mean, I don't want to thrust them out into this wicked society. I mean, it's the worst ever. The things that your children have to face are scary. We live in a dark world, which is all the more reason, if I can throw in my two cents here, all the more reason to have kids. A couple weeks ago, a Christian couple was talking to me, and they they have their fill of kids, and uh, the wife's pregnant again. And I said, wow, it's getting tough to raise kids, isn't it? This world's getting pretty dark. And she turned to me and said, you know, the world needs more children like the children we can produce as Christians. I thought that's the best perspective I've ever heard on having kids as a Christian. 
This world's dark, so we need light bulbs. And every time we dedicate a child, when we pray for a child before the service, that's what we're praying for, isn't it? You're in Babylon. Have children that you be not diminished. Thrust them out into this dark world. Oh, it's dark out there. It's scary. So prepare them and let them get out. And then he says, seek the peace of the city and pray for its peace. In other words, get involved in your local city, in your local culture, so that you can live a peaceful life. Now, back in the Jesus movement days, if you've heard of that, as 60s and 70s, big revival took place throughout this country in different pockets. And there was a lot of talk, and there still is, and there still should be, a lot of talk of the Lord's soon return, which I still believe in. But there were a group of people that took that to the extreme, thinking Jesus is going to come back at any minute, therefore I must disregard all my responsibilities, sit on the roof and just wait for Jesus to come back. And I was starting to go to college and people put a guilt trip on me. Don't go to college, brother. Jesus is coming back. You need to spread the gospel. And I thought, well, people in colleges need the gospel. I'm going. And it was taken way to an extreme. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Don't just sit around and wait for me to come. Get busy in the society, in the culture. You're salt and light. Get involved in your city. Get involved in the issues. Get involved in the government. Seek its peace, for in its peace you will find peace. An example that comes to my mind is Joseph. Remember Joseph? He was from Israel. He was captured and taken to where? Egypt. He wasn't at home in Egypt. Egypt was a pagan society. They didn't love God. They had thousands of other gods. What did Joseph do? He got married to a girl named Anasoth. He had two kids named Ephraim and Manasseh. He became the prime minister of Egypt. He saved countless numbers of people throughout the world from starving to death in a famine. And at the same time, while he was so busy being involved in functioning in his society, in his world, he didn't become of his world. The world didn't drag him down. He left the greatest testimony to the glory of God while he was there in Egypt. Now, folks, as you and I face the 90s, there are three basic responses that we can have to the wickedness that we see. First of all, you can be intimidated by it. You look outside, you read USA Today, Time Magazine, turn on the news. And you know, the other night I was turning on the news, it got so dark, it got so black, the stories that were being covered, I just had to turn it off. I just thought, you know what, if I listen to any more, I've been listening now for a half an hour, I'm going to get nauseated. It's depressing. And that can cause us to become intimidated and look for a convenient hole to crawl into and bury our head in the sand because the picture looks so big and the needs are so magnanimous and we feel so insignificant. We get intimidated by the needs. And so we just kind of stay in the shadows. Response number two, very common among Christians, unfortunately, is isolation. We look at the world, we look at its darkness, we agree, pretty stinking, pretty rotten out there. And so our major obligation then becomes to protect ourselves from it and protect little Johnny and little Susie from it. We become isolated. Our major thrust is solely protection. 
The best response is not intimidation. It's not isolation. It's infiltration. You see yourself as an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ, thrust into a broken, hurting world. And you decide, you know what, like Joseph, and like God told these people, I'm going to make a difference. For Edmund Burke once said, all that is necessary for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. So be involved where you are. And then, he says in the next couple verses, be careful who you listen to. This is all good advice for the future. Verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. You know, there's always two kinds of road signs when you're driving. There's the road signs that give you information. For instance, you'll see a green sign that says Santa Fe, 50 miles. That's information. You'll see another road sign that is a cautionary road sign. It will say, caution, slow down, windy road ahead. Or road construction ahead. Usually you'll see a lot of those kind of signs in this city. It's not only information, it's caution. You need to do something to slow down. You need to be watchful. Flashing yellow light, school children up ahead. This is a road sign of caution. He challenges them, he encourages them, he sustains them. Now God warns them of a group of false prophets. And if you want to face the 90s squarely, be careful who you listen to. You know, Jeremiah, while he was preaching gloom and doom, and by the way, he was one of those gloom and doom preachers, he was telling the truth. He said, if you don't repent, Israel, God's going to take you captive. At the same time that he was predicting that, there was another group of prophets on the other side of Jerusalem saying the complete opposite. They were saying, oh, no, God wants prosperity for you. You'll never be taken captive. Don't listen to the gloom and doom that's negative. The positive thing to believe is that this will never happen. You know what? It happened. And while they were in Babylon, the same group of prophets who were taken captive, now were saying, don't worry, Jerusalem will never be taken siege or be wiped out. And you'll return soon. In a few days, in a few months, you'll go right back to Jerusalem. God said, no, you won't. You'll be there 70 years. So he says, be selective who you listen to while you're spending your lifetime in Babylon, while you're being sustained by the Word of God, while you're being responsible and having kids and putting a little bit of your roots down, be careful who you listen to because there's a group of false prophets that would have you believe that this really wouldn't happen. And you and I, as we face the 90s, need to be selective because the Gospel is being repackaged before our eyes. We have seen false teachers in the 80s. They're going to be with us all the way through the 90s. It's the Madison Avenue Gospel. They've packaged it up completely different. They've made the Gospel a heavenly Sears catalog. You just kind of name and claim whatever you want and God just wants the prosperity for you and no suffering, no kind of character-building situations. Those are negative. God forbid that His children would encounter any of those kinds of things. Beware who you listen to. It's called painless Christianity. 
It goes like this. We've taken all the fuss out of Christianity. No unpleasant aftertaste. We will give you a maintenance-free Jesus, which is, after all, what all Americans would like, right? The Bible says, prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good. Jude told us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As you and I approach the 90s, this book will become a reproach among this world and a reproach among many so-called Christians. So you hold fast to what is good and be very selective who you listen to. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and he meditates in it day and night. And then finally, God says to be mindful of your transients here. Look at that reminder in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you, perform my good word toward you, and cause you to return to this place. Now, you guys be responsible where you are. Yep, have wives. Yep, have kids. Yep, infiltrate into your society. But remember, in 70 years, it's all over with. So don't put your roots down too deep because I'm coming back and I'm taking you back to Jerusalem. So you just be mindful that you're here, but for a very temporary period of time. It is not permanent. And folks... If we do not remember that we are pilgrims on this earth and that our stay here is temporary, we are dead in the water before we start the 90s. Listen to what James tells us in the New Testament. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? Here it is. It is a vapor. That's your life. It's a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I have a friend named K.P. Yohanan who does mission work and he always prays when I'm with him. With any group of people, he says, Lord, stamp eternity on our eyelids so that we're always seeing that in front of us. So that we don't just spend our lives, we invest them. Years ago, Larry Norman wrote a song and did an album called Only Visiting This Planet. That's good theology. I'm cruising along this earth, but I'm only visiting this planet. God forbid that I should get my roots too deeply down here. And Paul the Apostle, when he spoke of this life, he said it's so temporary that he compared his body to a tent. Something that you spend just a little bit of time in. You don't permanently live in a tent. You don't want to put your stakes too deeply into the ground. Because it's not going to last. It's very, very temporary. That's a warning for us, by the way. For Jesus spoke of the man who was like the soil that the seed was sown upon, but the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and other things choked the seed and it became unfruitful. And what Jesus was speaking about is a person who is torn between those two kingdoms again. It's the person who has enough of God so that he doesn't feel completely comfortable in the world, but enough of the world that he doesn't feel completely satisfied in Jesus Christ. He's torn. It's like the farmer who had one of his fruit trees at the edge of his property. And he said, you know, that fruit tree is a real mess. 
It's the edge of my property and half is over on my property and half goes over the edge. And the schoolboys come over every day and they beat that thing with the broomstick so the apples fall on their side. And I'm beating it on this side to get apples for me. And that tree is the most beat up tree in my orchard. So many Christians are beat up by the world and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Never satisfied in one place. Just enough of both, but never satisfied in either place. And then finally, verse 11. This is the mind of God toward you. The mind of God toward you. As I look back on the 80s, they seem to have gone by like a wisp. A lot of great things happened. I just can't believe I'm standing here and it's the last day of 1989. And the next 10 years are going to go like that. There was a sign. It's still posted, I think, in Zion National Park. It says, as you enter, take nothing but pictures. Leave nothing but footprints. And that's what we have to remember. And in verse 11, God now tells us the thoughts and the whole motivation for this. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Ever wonder what God thinks about you? I mean, you know God loves you. That's what you, you think. Well, God loves me. He's supposed to love me. But does He like me? Whole different issue. What kind of things does God think about me? Because I do flaky things. And what kind of thoughts go through His head? And does He think about me very often? Listen to what David said. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. Now listen. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. How often does God think about you? More in number than the sand. Go out today, do an experiment, get a handful of sand and estimate how much is there in grains. Think, oh, that would take a long time to count. Okay, just take a few grains. Count a hundred of them. Put them in your palm. Compare that to a fistful and think of all the sands on the earth and realize how much God thinks about you. The sum of God's thoughts toward you. Yes, God likes you. God wants your fellowship. And verse 11 expresses the inmost expression of God's heart toward you. I have a future for you. I have a plan for you. A hopeful future. Let me paraphrase this knowing that the children of Israel were in captivity, probably wondering, I'm in captivity. Certainly God is true with me. I don't have a future. I'm taken captive. God says, no, 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 no. I have a future for you. I have a hope for you. Even though you're here by your own sin and your own idolatry, I love you enough to even make the best out of that. And I'm going to bring you back. I have a hope and I have a future for you. You know that the whole reason for captivity was to bring them back to God? God didn't send them to captivity just to punish them, just to smack them. The reason God sent them to Babylon so that they would wake up and turn and repent and they would come back to God in humility. It's very, very important we realize that. The captivity was a spanking so that they would run back into their father's arms. Isn't that what you want when you spank your kids? You know, I am finding that 
um, as Nathan's old nature is being developed more, that I have to discipline him more consistently. And I'll be very honest with you, I hate to spank my kid. And that whole truth now comes to my mind. My dad used to say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. I used to think, yeah, right. (laughs) Now I know it's true. I absolutely hate to see him cry and in pain. When I take out that spanker and I turn him over and he cries, oh, it hurts him like crazy. The best part is when the tears start to dry up and he runs to me with his arms out and he wants me to hug him. I find out when I don't discipline him, that doesn't happen. When I do discipline him, he runs back to me. He wants my affirmation. He wants me to hug him. He wants me to tell him, I love you. It's all over with now. And that's the whole purpose for the captivity. To give them a little spanking, to drive them back to God. And it's as if God is cuddling his children in his arms saying, Kids, I have a future for you. I've got, it's not over with. I've got plans for you. And folks, God has plans for you in the 90s. God has a future for you in the 90s. The sad truth is that some of you are not aligned with God's plan. You haven't submitted your life entirely to the plan of God. And it's time to do that. You know, every New Year's, the Italians have an interesting custom in Italy. The streets are all closed off beginning around 11 o'clock in the evening. And they're completely dead until the strike of midnight and people go out into the streets and they take something that reminded them of a failure during the year, of something old they want to discard, an old memory, an old habit they want to discard, and they make it tangible by taking something like a piece of furniture they might have smacked their hand on one time. And they take it out in the street and they just break it to pieces. And it's like this big party of symbolically throwing away something of the past to begin something new. And some of us have to do that this year. Maybe not take out a couch or a table, but throw away our plans that have kept us perhaps from the Lord. Our busyness that have kept us from the Lord. Anything that has kept us, we need to take it and we need to throw it out. We need to remember that sign as we travel through the 90s. As we're on this earth, take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints. Because we have another home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to the past, we have thanksgiving. As we look to the future, we have hope. Not worry, hope. You promised us a future, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would um, bring to our attention, although we live in nice homes, a nice city, prosperous culture, that we're living in Babylon not sympathetic toward the ways of God, hostile to the gospel, and that we must be sustained by the word of God this year. Help us, Lord, to not isolate ourselves, but to become responsible in our society. But not getting our roots too deeply upon this earth, mindful that you're going to be here soon. I pray, Father, more than anything else, that we would walk away renewed with the fact that your thoughts toward us are pure and precious, that you want the highest good for us, and that you've provided a way that we might live life abundantly to the fullest. 
and that we would align our plans and our decisions with your perfect will.